Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Public health experts have said that casinos are high-risk environments for COVID-19, and a new analysis of smartphone data shows just how interconnected the country is with visitors to Las Vegas. During a four-day period in July, 26,000 devices were identified on the Las Vegas Strip, and in that same weekend, those same smartphones showed up in every state on the mainland except for Maine. For more on just how mobile people are despite the pandemic, we'll speak to Marshall Allen, healthcare reporter at ProPublica. I reached out to a couple companies that specialize in this kind of data. One of them is called Xmode. They're a company that gathers cell phone device data. They do it in a de-identified way. I mean, the whole thing is pretty creepy, right? When you think about how our movements are tracked based on our smartphone devices. Um, So they get this data from apps we use for like fitness or weather, things that track our location. And a company called Tectonics does the analysis and visualizes the data. So I reached out to those companies and I asked them if they could do an analysis based on Las Vegas. I also have great love for Las Vegas. I used to live there for five years. I was a journalist there at the Las Vegas Sun newspaper. So I know Vegas real well. And I had a feeling that Vegas could be a problematic place when it comes to the virus. What their data showed, they have a data set that represents about 5% of all the cell phone devices in the country. And during a four-day period in July, they were able to identify about 26,000 devices on the Las Vegas Strip, so where all the big hotels are. And they were able to look and see where those same smartphones showed up in the same four-day period. And what's amazing is just how far the reach is for travelers who go through Las Vegas. I mean, even in a pandemic, people are extremely mobile. And those cell phone devices, some of the same ones that were on the Strip, showed up in every single state in the country except for Maine. And they showed up by the thousands in places like Southern California and Arizona, and even by the hundreds in Milwaukee, Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland area, in Texas, even all the way out to the New York area. And what it shows is that people are still extremely mobile. Our country is very connected. And the real problem here is that casinos, according to the public health experts I talked to, are exactly the kind of place that would be a likely hotbed for the virus to spread. You have an indoor environment, You have people who are mingling together. You have a lot of strangers coming from a lot of different places mixing together. And you have a collection of people who may be more prone to taking risks, right? I talked to a lot of workers in Vegas, and they told me that the people who come visit, they're really trying to come to forget about the coronavirus, right? Right. They want to have a good time. They want to get away from this pandemic. And so they've seen a lot of problems with visitors not wearing masks or refusing to wear masks. They've had people gathering in crowds, and it's got all the ingredients for what public health experts would say is a problem. And that was part of the problem, too. The Vegas casinos opened on June 4th, and we remember how there was promotions for almost free air travel to get there. They wanted people to turn out, and they kind of got their wish. People did go, and then we started seeing cases spike again. But, you know, you were talking about how people didn't want to wear masks and whatnot. That was also part of the problem because... 
the regulations were all over the place. There was no set to govern all of them. Really, each casino or each casino group were left alone to make their own rules. And some said we need customers to wear masks. Others said they don't. Same thing with workers. There was testing on some part of it. Others didn't do testing. So this was also kind of the problem there, this patchwork of rules. That's exactly right. The regulators in Nevada give in a lot to the casino industry because it is really such a dominant force in the in the city. I mean, one of the historians in Nevada told me the gaming industry isn't just the tail that wags the dog. It may just be the dog, you know? So, I mean, they really are running things in Nevada. And one of the biggest problems here is that our public health system is not really structured in a way that will identify any type of an outbreak that would occur in a casino. All of our contact tracing, that's the process where a local public health agency will call people who tested positive, ask who they've been in touch with, make sure people are quarantining to prevent the spread of the virus. That contact tracing process is really not focused at all on county to county or state to state contact tracing. And it's not focused on looking for an outbreak or looking for a super spreader event in a place like Vegas. So you have this environment where it's ripe for the virus to spread. And then all those travelers are going back to Southern California or they're going back to Phoenix or throughout the rest of the country. And the public health system is not even identifying whether or not they might have picked up these cases in a place like the Las Vegas Strip. That's one of the biggest problems with coronavirus already is we're always playing from behind on its movement. So it's hard to even track it that way. Marshall, tell me a little bit about some of the casinos COVID plans. You talk a little bit about MGM resorts and some of their plans and in their policies, they basically say if somebody comes down with coronavirus, let's say they stay there, they go home, they take a test, you know, oh my God, I have coronavirus. They're supposed to notify MGM, send them an email or something. But I mean, I'm willing to bet a lot of people that's not top of mind for them. They're not going to email back. And then on top of that, it's just, they don't provide some of that data with how many people have hit them back up, how many possible outbreaks that they've had at their properties. That's correct. Yeah, I reached out to MGM and I asked them if they could tell me how often that has happened, that they've had people email them and they wouldn't tell me. But the experts I talked to said it's highly unlikely, you know, that people are going to reach back to MGM and say, oh, by the way, I tested positive. I mean, it could be. But even the local health district there in southern Nevada said they have not really been hearing from other public health agencies or not very much. And frankly, all the public health agencies are overwhelmed with cases in their own jurisdiction. So they don't really know where everybody picked up the cases. There's community spread all over the country. There's a 14-day incubation period for COVID-19. So you could have picked it up 14 days before it shows up. A lot of people don't even have symptoms. I mean, it's really hard to trace the origin of this disease. And so it just makes it really difficult to control. You spoke a little bit about the employees, the workers there in Las Vegas that work in all the casinos and all that. Let's talk a little bit about that because they're also worried about it too. Uh, you know, the, when these casinos were set up, they weren't set up for social distancing. You mentioned some workers in the kitchen at Binion's Cafe down in, in the Fremont area and how they're working elbow to elbow basically in a tiny kitchen because that's the way it was set up so long ago. And just the, the increased worry that they go through that something might happen. Well, I think this is really the tragedy. You know, one of the experts I talked to, the historians about the workforce in Nevada said, what's happening here is that people are gambling with lives. 
the casino owners, the properties themselves, they're gambling with lives when they require the workers to show up for work in the middle of a pandemic where it's very difficult to social distance and a lot of the guests are not wearing masks. And just to be fair, you know, the casinos have done a lot to transform Las Vegas. I mean, if you go to Vegas now, your experience is going to be much different than it would have been last year. I mean, they have distanced the tables. They have plexiglass barriers set up. They have hand sanitizing and hand washing stations set up on the casino floor in different places. The workers are all wearing masks. But the workers I talked to said the guests are not. A lot of them are taking it seriously, but many of them are not. And when you have that many people coming into one place and then they refuse to distance and they refuse to wear masks, even if a few of them refuse, it creates a high risk environment for those workers. Just looking at that cell phone data, going back to that, you can see how it's so possible for this. It's like a video game. You can see the spread almost in real time just looking at that cell phone data. You can. And I think that's the visualization of it is what's so powerful and astonishing. You know, when you see just how connected we are, almost every major city in the country in that same four day period had people coming through Vegas. And so the weird thing is it was only a four day period. Vegas has been open for months. And so there are way, way more people going through than just that. And it just brings home how interconnected we are. One of the public health experts I talked to who does infectious disease modeling compared it to a forest fire. So if you picture a forest fire in Las Vegas, and then you imagine a group of trees that are on fire, and then some of the flames jump to another area, and then they ignite trees in that area, that's exactly what can occur when people gather in Las Vegas, spread the virus among each other, and then hop on planes and hop in cars and drive back home to communities all over the country. Marshall Allen, healthcare reporter at ProPublica. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate your interest. Finally for this week, you might have heard about the Boogaloo Boys, a group of Hawaiian shirt-wearing anti-government insurgents. They are hoping for a second civil war and often organizing gun-toting militias. Vice News followed Mike Dunn, a 19-year-old man organizing against gun control, and saw how he rose into the Boogaloo movement. The movement evolved from an obscure internet meme to national security concern in the span of just a few months. For more on the Boogaloo movement, we'll speak to Tess Owen, senior reporter at Vice News. I would describe it as an insurgent anti-government movement that, as you say, it's pulled in an array of ideologies from hardline libertarians and anti-government extremists and some white supremacists. They're pretty new. It's more of a kind of a movement rather than a structured group. And Boogaloo, as you said, it's sort of as kind of as a meme to refer to a violent uprising or a second civil war and started on these kind of fringe parts of the internet. And then about six months ago, it kind of had started growing into this movement, primarily on Facebook. And I think the first time that anyone had even heard of a Boogaloo boy was interestingly at a rally in Virginia in January, a big gun rights rally. And most of them were kind of, you know, regular gun owners and militia types. And there was one group there who had patches on their jackets saying Boogaloo boys and logos that we now associate with the movement now. So those were kind of like the first sighting of the Boogaloo Boys in the wild, I guess. But at that time, I think a lot of extremism experts hadn't even really heard of them. They just weren't on the radar. And then, as you said, I think they really started to kind of come out, moving from the internet into the real world. First, it was in response to lockdowns, COVID-19. And so they started showing up at these anti-lockdown protests with guns 
or they were showing up, for example, to, quote, defend businesses that had chosen to stay open in defiance of lockdown orders. After George Floyd's death in Minneapolis, then the Boogaloo movement kind of latched on to the Black Lives Matter protests and started showing up, you know, in their Hawaiian shirts with guns and people didn't really know what to make of them. They couldn't tell whether they were there to protest against Black Lives Matter. And I don't think it was also necessarily clear. Some groups, I think, have seen themselves or try to position themselves as allies, whether or not how far you want to kind of go with that or believe it. And then others, it seems like were there to just exploit the unrest to advance their own violent agendas which in some cases was they wanted to seek a violent standoff with police or hope to prompt one side or the other into shooting. It's interesting, really, to try to pin them down. It's very difficult, as we were saying. The ideologies are all over the place. Two main themes that I have picked up on are opposition to gun laws and also this kind of notion of anti-police or anti-government action or overreach. And in that case, that's why some of them tacked on to some of the George Floyd protests because it was against police brutality. So it's tough to pin them down on the ideology. And we'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. But you profiled Mike Dunn. He went to the military. He got involved with some of these groups and he started organizing militia groups. And then he full on, there was this kind of evolution that you noticed in him after talking to him over the course of a few months or so. And he finally admitted, yeah, I am a Boogaloo boy. And he kind of rose into this movement here. Tell us about him and how it happened. Back in February, I was working on a story about political polarization and proposed gun laws in Virginia and how that was galvanizing militia activity across the state. And went to some militia events, specifically in the southwest Virginia, where the uptick in this militia activity or people organizing county militias was really happening. And it was in part, I think, because of this, like, because of the polarization and like a spiritual rift that had been happening in Northern Virginia, which is like increasingly wealthy and liberal and the Southwest, which is poor and more conservative and more rural. And anyway, after a few weeks after I got back, COVID-19 hit the US, the world pretty much turned upside down. And so I tabled the story. Honestly, wasn't sure if it would ever be relevant in, you know, a post or during the COVID-19 world. And then a few months later, I kind of checked back in with one of my main characters, who is this 19-year-old Mike Dunn who I'd interviewed in February. And he had gone from being a gun rights activist and organizing these local militias to being loud and proud of in this movement that I'd been writing about, the Boogaloo movement. And I knew that the movement had pulled in tens of thousands of people to its online network. But it was quite strange to put a face on it. And I kind of wanted to understand what had drawn him in and also what the, some of the nuances were between his identity as like a militia guy, which many people still quite extreme, and as a boogaloo boy. And for Mike, how would he define his ideology in this? What draws him to the boogaloo movement and makes him want to wear the Hawaiian shirt, carry the gun, go to these events where the militias are gathering? Like, what is it for him? Well, I think that, you know, as you said, he was a Marine and he was medically discharged due to, you know, a heart condition. And he said he learned a lot about guns. And, you know, before going to the Marines, he started being interested in the politics of firearms and gun rights. And then shortly after he got out of the Marines, he started this group called the Virginia Knights, which is this local militia group. But I think one of the things that was important for me to remember was that even back in February, there was kind of a generational divide happening between Mike, who obviously is young, and some of the kind of like older traditional militia types. And, you know, it was pretty clear that back in February, Mike Dunn's pitch and vision for a militia 
was actually rubbing some people the wrong way. And some of the older generation I spoke to, basically their vision was something more along the lines of like a glorified Boy Scout unit who could, you know, they could organize against any gun laws they deemed unfair. But if someone needed their roof tarped during a flood, they could help. But Mike's vision was a lot more paramilitary, even then. And then what Mike said, the turning point for him ends up being a kind of a crystallizing moment for the movement in general, which was in March, the death of 21-year-old Duncan Lemp, who was killed by Maryland police in a no-knock raid. And Lemp was known in anti-government circles online, and he police were executing the warrant after they got a tip that he possessed illegal possession of weapons. And Mike knew Duncan Lemp. They were friends on Facebook. And Lemp has kind of become a martyr for this movement in general. Like the Boogaloo Boys make TikToks, which are just pictures of Lemp. And they have, you know, Facebook pages like dedicated to him. They have said that they want to seek out violence against police officers to like, avenge Duncan Lemp's death. And so for Mike, he said that that was really the big turning point for him too. That he felt a lot angrier and I feel like you know, Lent's death also gave a kind of a shape and a face and a name to these grievances that were already just like driving this yeah. pretty nascent movement. And it's interesting that you say that for Lemp and what happened there, he was killed by police at a no-knock warrant. And I know that some people in the Boogaloo movement have even attached themselves to the Breonna Taylor movement, getting those officers arrested and accounted for because she was killed after the cops went through a no-knock warrant. So this kind of division of race and all that stuff, is it gets very murky with this group. They're attaching themselves to specific incidences and finding common ground in that, at least. But overall, it seems like the Boogaloo Boys, they find themselves as these younger, more action-oriented generation of militiamen. Even in talking to Mike Dunn, you know, he talks about, well, we're the guys that are willing to go out there and actively defend something. You know, we're going to use the guns if we need to. That's why they go out there and display themselves with them. As you mentioned, kind of paramilitary, and he has that background, and he trains others as well. So they're looking for something to actively start. I know sometimes they talk about the movement and looking for a second civil war, but this is something that they're actively seeking, it seems like. Someone like Mike, he's kind of, I mean, he's he's so young, and he kind of goes back and forth between being like, He's quite careful with his words, but then he'll say something which you think like, oh, that sounds quite radical. Or he'll say, you know, I don't care about being labeled an extremist. Or he'll say, yeah, you know, of course I'm on a watch list. He said, he told me that the FBI had visited him in the months, you know, between I saw him in February and then when I saw him later on in July. So I think it's hard to know. And, and this is the same with like a lot of these movements where it'd be like just traditional militia movements or the Boogaloo Boys or is how many of them are actually serious or, you know, how much of it is just plain dress up. And how much of it is actually that, you know, they do actually want violence. And I think that's one of the most confusing things about this movement is it's so big. It's so sprawling. There are so many guns and this violent ideology kind of underpinning it. And you just don't really know the difference between, you know, who's for real and who's just playing. Right. Tess Owen, senior reporter at Vice News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.